Hi, and thank you for joining me today. My name is Steve Blumenthal. I am Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of CMG, Capital Management Group, and uh, appreciate you joining the call today. On me, on the call with me is Jonathan Ward. Jonathan is the author of China's Vision of Victory. He's the founder of Atlas Organization. The business, his business is a consultant to businesses, to the U.S. government, on U.S. and China global competition. Jonathan, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. Well, we had an interesting adventure together. So uh, recently, uh, we both flew to Camp Kotak up in uh, northern Maine. We met at uh, just outside the Bangor Airport, and then we drove two and a half hours up to uh, up to uh, Grand Lake Stream to fish at uh, David Kotak's annual Camp Kotak, which is uh, uh, kind of a shadow fed of sorts, a gathering of uh, economists and uh, investment advisors and journalists and uh, um, uh, heads of, uh, of of major corporations and and you spoke uh, particularly about uh, your recent your new book China's Vision of Victory. But more importantly, I thought we'd have a conversation and and let you know number one how much I enjoyed our trip up together uh, and the discussion that we had. You opened my eyes on what's going on with China. So can I have you share? what your book is about and your, the, the passion you have behind this uh, and, um, and your experience and how, this, how the book came to be. Absolutely, Steve. So essentially my new book, China's Vision of Victory, is about the Communist Party's um, global strategy to surpass the United States and become the dominant superpower in the 21st century. Um, I spent over a decade studying the rise of China that included travels all throughout um, rural and remote areas um, in my early 20s, um, and then doing a PhD at Oxford in China-India relations and accessing Chinese Communist Party um, documents from archives now that have been closed to the world, you know, consulting for the Pentagon, speaking very widely to U.S. military and government, um, consulting for Fortune 500s on both China and India, which is the other side of what I do. Um, and, you know, put the picture together in a book that I've just released a few months ago um, that's been, you know, very widely read in national security circles um, and in Washington and increasingly in the broader public. And what it does is it basically takes all the primary documentation from the Communist Party to explain exactly how they plan to um, come to dominate the 21st century. It's a global strategy. They literally have sub-strategies for every region from Latin America to the Middle East to the Arctic. Um, their military strategy is one that intends to close the gap and ultimately achieve technological um, parity and eventually supremacy. Um, and then, of course, their, their economy is, is, the, is the growth engine to this entire um, operation. And it's, it's very interesting because U.S. strategy towards China over the last 40 years since Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon went and opened the country in the Cold War was a strategy that sought engagement with the People's Republic of China. Um, which eventually meant business engagement so that our, you know, commercial enterprises, I mean, the U.S. corporations, finance, et cetera, would go and engage 
um, you know, with the People's Republic of China, hoping at a strategic level that um, China would become essentially a friend to the United States and what policymakers termed a responsible stakeholder in the rules-based order, i.e. the post-Cold War world. That failed completely. And the reason was, um, of course, the, the party had, had quite a different vision of its own of where this was all going. And they were basically using engagement with the United States to feed what they call the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And what that is, is it's a vision of China's return to supremacy among other nations and in world affairs. And what that really means is China, um, as they see it, they call it the Bainan Guocha, the century, 100 years of national humiliation, which was a period um, essentially from the 1800s to the founding of the People's Republic of China where China was humiliated at the hands of foreign empires, um, you know, sort of fell from its um, prime position in, in, you know, in Asia, which for them was the known world. And then, you know, the Communist Party would restore China to glory, essentially. And the only thing that stands in the way of that now is really the United States. So we're going to be in a very tough contest. American government is adjusting to this entire picture. It's currently the, the you know, certainly the dominant um, issue in, in Washington when it comes to international relations. The when trade did, war is really just one side of it. When did um, you... When did when did the lights go off for you? You lived there for uh, a number of years. You studied all these private documents, uh, and you was, was there a, a wow moment where you came to this conclusion of of what this plan is? And that's question number one. And then question number two is, uh, how have we in the uh, free world? Um, in the United States, how have we missed this so badly? Absolutely. So for me, the, there were there were basically a series of sort of aha moments when I realized what was going on. I mean, one was uh, early on in my chi- in my time in China. Um, I spent time in Xinjiang in Tibet. I got a motorcycle, rode it around Xinjiang, went through Tibet hitchhiking on truck caravans, and, and these, of course, are two reasons are regions that have been over the, the decades and, and really centuries even incorporated into into the People's Republic of China through the domination of the people that lived in them. I mean, they used to be um, places that had significantly more autonomy than they do now. So seeing what it was like for these um, places to be occupied by China and just ruled by by China and the, and the way of life of you know the Tibetans and the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs today, we hear about the one million of them in concentration camps undergoing re-education that basically teaches them to love the party. The Tibetans, I mean, that's a story that you know, the world at this point has, I think, essentially forgotten. Um, you know, seeing that firsthand, that that was an eye-opener. The other thing was meeting young people my age. I mean, I was um, spent a lot of my time in China in my early, in my 20s, and meeting people from my generation who were incredibly hostile to the United States. Um, and that included people that had studied abroad um, and left China. You know, these I later understood were products of what the Communist Party calls the Patriotic Education Program, which after Tiananmen Square 30 years ago um, was meant to teach all the youth of China sort of love of country, love of the party. And it used, um, you know, anti-Japanese sentiment, anti-American sentiment, anti-Western sentiment to sort of guide them towards this. So, so you know, that was, was you know, really surprising wow. to me to meet, meet young people who hated the United States so much. Um you know, and that's not true of everybody, but it was it was you know very surprising as I encountered it often. Um, and the other thing was was spending time. Um, you know, as I got to know, you know, my my PhD was essentially with one of the leading historians of China in the world, and just um, 
what I got to study there with the rise of the Communist Party through their primary documents, their relationship to India, to Russia, to the United States, and this showed me how China um, interacted with, with other major powers and their sense of national destiny and, um, and what, it, what they were thinking essentially and how they were looking at the world when they chose to go to war with India, with the United States, and in the Korean War, etc. And, and really those foundations for the sense of national destiny that um, continues to exist today, which is actually gaining momentum. And then I think also consulting for the Pentagon was was a big eye opener. And just the questions that I would, was asked were um, led me in directions that I think were incredibly important. So um, applying all this knowledge now, I mean that's really the side that matters now is the is sort of the application of this to major businesses, to um, you know to U.S. government. I mean all of that um, as I go through my, my life as an expert on this um, from the, the next generation. So, I, so, so I've, been all, in yeah. the, I've been in the camp that says that if we uh, accelerate in-trade partnership, uh, the greater peace that exists, the better it is for uh, prevention of war and, and, and the kinds of issues that you're essentially saying, is, and as we t- drove up together, that that's not their plan. Their plan long ball. Their plan is within the next 30 years, approximately, to be the dominant uh, leader in the world. And that means economically and that means militarily. Uh, and and that's uh, and we in the United States are really playing short ball uh, with not a major, you know, uh, uh, defined plan in structure. And so what, talk to that a little bit. Absolutely. No, that's, that's right. I mean, we, um, had this, I think, very naive concept of China. And you think about the people that opened China to the United States. I mean, what experience did they have that they were not, um, you know, they're, they're, I think that sort of uh, firsthand knowledge wasn't really, um, accessible at that time. Um, we, we built our engagement with China on this, um, you know, very naive idea that they would essentially become like us. I mean, that's, that's where, where American foreign policy sort of envisions that all countries eventually just want to, to be close to the U.S. I mean, we've made mistakes of that kind in the past, but we certainly made that mistake this time. Um, and then I think the fact that it was, um, you know, when global business stepped in and looked to China as a major, you know, first, um, for supply chains and labor and ultimately for its own market. Um, I mean, that was not really considering, I mean, you think about all the people that went into China as though there was no political risk, as though it was, um, you know, simply um, a supply chain consideration. And today we're finding with the trade war that there's a massive amount of political risk. I mean, this was this is a country that, you know, our government now understands its intentions um, and that our businesses will have to catch up to that picture and everybody's really going to have to adjust to this. Um, so, so, you know, America, I think, in the post-Cold War world had a great sense of um, absolute victory. You know, books written like The World is Flat and, um, you know, The End of History and all this sort of triumphalism that just didn't really understand other nations, um, their sense of history, their sense of destiny. We, we just got lost in our own, I think, um, you know, naivete. And now... And that was very dangerous. And, and and now where do you feel we are from a policy standpoint? And just blatantly, uh, what's your view on we're, – we're currently in a trade war uh, and we're uh, looking to be progressing quickly to a currency war. The first shots of that were fired with the break of uh, the peg uh, of the, the, the yuan to the dollar 
uh, a week ago. It's been a week of major disruption in the in the equity markets. So um, we're, we're we're seeing some of these things play out. Where would, what would you advise as far as uh, uh, trade policy, and what what would you advise businesses to do? I think where we have to head, I mean, we're officially moving from engagement to what's called um, major power competition. So, so you know, we're in a competition with China now. We know that. I mean, the United States understands that. Um, and, and then the question next is what kind of decoupling is going to happen between the U.S. and Chinese economies? I mean, on some level, um, technology, you know, we all sort of know this through reading and, and what have you. I mean, commonly understood. I mean, certain aspects of technology, whether that's Huawei or others, will have to um, start to separate. And then, you know, it will be a trade relationship, but it can't be one that um, accelerates their military industrial base, um, that accelerates their competitive advantages in their strategy. You know, those sorts of, of issues are, are going to be at the forefront of American policymaking. You know, mine is more of an alliance-based trading system. I mean, when you think about um, the democratic countries in the world, many of which are American allies, um, we're two-thirds of the global economy. I mean, this was the world that sort of took shape um, during the 20th century and at the end of the Cold War. And um, we invited the authoritarian dictatorships into this. We invited China and we invited Russia, and um, they're now, you know, letting their sort of hostile intentions be well known. And adjusting to the 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 economic potential of the countries that are actually on our side in this long-term picture. I mean, that's where all the opportunity I think is going to go. I mean, that's, that's where the smart um, business planning will go. I think the companies that bought sort of hook, line and sinker U S China economic engagement as though there was no risk, they'll be in a lot of trouble. I mean, that's going to be sort of the front lines of this competition, the way that the Chinese are um, retaliating against American firms. I mean, putting little piece, you know, sort of pressure points on them here and there um, as they look for leverage in the trade war. I mean, that's, it's pretty easy to figure out which, which ones are exposed to that. That's something that we work on at Atlas. Um, and then, you know, the companies that are maneuverable enough and smart enough to figure out how to reorient their supply chains, how to prioritize other markets, how to stay ahead of their emerging Chinese competitors. I mean, that's a huge piece of this. China for the last 20 years of, um, you know, joint venture and joint ventures and IP transfer um, has now created national champions, which are going out in, in a dozen different industries and competing against um, U.S. and multinational firms. And it's a huge issue for um, incumbent um, companies. And, and then, you know, so, so I think all of that is coming coming together. And then, and then the companies that don't have the exposure to this problem, I mean, they may stand to win as the world, I think, redirects itself around this giant problem in global affairs. So, you know, there are going to be a wide variety of those that I think are going to be better positioned to capture um, opportunity as, as the U.S. reorients. I mean, I think an American industrial policy may be on the way, you know, a comprehensive strategy towards China, um, engagement with India, engagement with, um, with our Asian allies. I mean, it's going to be a very different world. And for 30 years, people didn't have to think about geopolitical risk in a big way. And now, um, because of that hiatus and thinking, um, some some big adjustments that I think are going to be made. So understanding where the next decade is going and what that looks like in the immediate term, I mean, that's where people's heads need to be. The trade war is really just um, a big signal as to the larger competition. Do you think that there will be some sort of trade truce? 
I think there could be something to get through the elections. And what that would be most likely to be is, is, is the ag purchases. I mean, following through on the ag purchases, some sort of negotiation over Huawei, um, some truce on the tariffs. But I think ultimately what this really is, is it's the beginning of U.S.-China economic competition that's going to last for, you know, you know, decades potentially, or at least until there's some sort of stability that's achieved, um, you know, as we adjust to what their plan is and how ultimately to to overcome that challenge. And what that's really going to require, I think, is is a vision for the future of the United States and for the rest of the free world. So, um, you know, that's where the, the, the policy and strategy making, I think, has yet to be done. But there are a lot of strong hints of what that looks like coming out of Washington in, in many official and public documents. So I think, um, you know, broadly speaking, we're going to have to adjust to this picture as a country. You mentioned no, to me as we were that. driving up, and I thought it was really bright, um, putting together a some form of commission, a long-term uh, brain uh, think tank that that um, survives uh, either party, uh, that has a 50, 100-year uh, game plan and not a uh, not a super short-term game plan. Well, yeah, I, think, I mean, I think that um, at a strategy making level, I mean, the last time you, the United States really did grand strategy, meaning what is the strategy of the United States um, in relation to the, to the world and all of its realities was something called Project Solarium, which President Eisenhower ran pretty earlier in the Cold War to, to get all the departments thinking together about the challenge of the USSR. And I think today, I mean, we need to be working on something that's like a vision of the year 2030, which is when this contest is really going to take shape. It's going to take shape from 2020 to 2030. That's when we win or lose, sort of stay in the game. And then going beyond that, it's like, what does America really aim to accomplish by the middle of the century? I mean, what's our vision for 2050? Um, how do we sort of um, work the, the, the next um, horizons of emerging technologies and industries and you know, so, so that that power, um, you know, is in the hands of the United States and other democratic countries. I mean, how do we reorient global trade flows so that we're prospering and benefited and not deindustrializing de well offshore and some of our greatest advantages to our, our chief adversary as we've done for, for you know, decades now. So there's going to be a lot that has to be done. And I think that's sort of um, where we're headed as a country is towards working out what this picture is going to look like. Well, my big takeaway from our ride up together was um, your your unending passion uh, for how important this issue is. I said it may be the seminal issue of our day uh, to uh, to get right. Um, so that's uh, certainly for our children and grandchildren, and and uh, and in the bulk of you know when I look around the world, I certainly love the. Uh, the 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 basic foundation of what uh, what a free world is founded upon, and uh, it's not a perfect system. Uh, we don't do everything right, uh, but I certainly couldn't see living under um, a, uh, a a system that, that that grades me based on my uh, score of uh, what I'm able to bring and do in the direction that the party wants me to bring and do. Uh, facial recognition everywhere, behavior patterns, visits uh, to the home. If one of my children uh, perhaps said or did something that uh, that that the the party isn't uh, believing 
to be the best of, of, of what we wish our people to be. Um, th- that's what's happening over there. Uh, so, um, so you're bringing light to something I think really important. Let me switch gears real fast uh, because this was your first uh, trip to Camp Kotak. Uh, I re- oh, by the way, uh, to listeners, I wrote recently in an On My Radar, and uh, in it was uh, a video of the dialogue that you did with Leland Miller uh, and several others, uh, and the topic was all things China. So. Uh, we're, we're, we're do do look at uh, on, look up on my radar, and uh, you'll find that on the August 16th, 2019 post. So, Jonathan, give me your what, what was your takeaway? How did you how did you like fishing camp? I loved it. I had such a good time at Camp Kotak, and and for me, um, you know, as somebody that works on major strategic issues. Um, and a lot of my daily engagement is with U.S. military or with Fortune 500s, but less so with the financial world and with economists. And I realized that fundamentally, um, when you look at the U.S.-China competition, it's going to be about mobilizing the true elements of American power. And that very much includes, um, you know, our, our sort of financial system and our financial um you know, experts and those who've had great careers and all of this. So I learned so much. Um, I clearly see this as, as, a, as a very important piece to this bigger struggle. And, you know, as a company, we're, we're eager to engage with more financial institutions as well. Um, I mean, we, we currently work with, with all sorts of um, other companies, but we'd love to get into that space. And it's clearly going to impact a lot of people where this whole picture is going. And, um, you know, I think the expertise of our financiers will ultimately be very important to this long-term competition. Well, I'll have a few of my global uh, macro hedge fund friends that uh, really will find your your uh, intelligence uh, uh, valuable into how they think and how they position globally with currency trades and those sorts of things. So, um, let's talk later. We'll have we'll have a few introductions for you. I think that that's important. Um, Sounds great. So one last thought here, and, and, and maybe a little bit out of order but and, and going backwards, but tell me when this theft of intellectual IP, our intellectual capital, yeah. when, we do a, when, we, when, we, when we do a deal or even uh, the espionage that's happening, the, the hacking that's happening and the information, what, how serious is that issue? It's incredibly serious. And the reason it matters most, and I think this is why people didn't get it um, for a long time, is all of that is going to be used to create Chinese competitors to American firms. So suddenly you're going to see these companies. I mean, you know, Fortune just released the Fortune Global 500. And there are just about, you know, there are 119 Chinese companies on the Global 500 now vis-a-vis 121 American companies. Now, this is basically the result of all that IP transfer. And and um, you know cyber and, and industrial espionage. A lot of this goes into the military picture. They have a program called Civil Military Fusion, which means that Chinese um, the Chinese industrial base and technology base in the private sector and um, the sort of civilian sector has to be brought to the military. Um, and they're building a military that's designed to fight the United States, so that's <laughs> not good. And then the fact is, you're going to have all these 
firms that have basically feasted on our intellectual property that are now going to compete with our companies all around the world with the backing of the Chinese state and in the service of this broader Chinese strategy, which is which is very clear and which we study very carefully. So, um, and that's one of the things that we're advising companies on is what their Chinese competitors, um, you know, objectives are, their strategies are, and what they're, you know, how to outmaneuver this stuff. So, so it's a very serious picture. I mean, the results are um, really going to take shape in the next 10 years. Starting now. If if we signed a trade deal that included uh, protection of intellectual property rights, do you think that that would be honored by the Chinese? I don't think that would be honored. And and you know the the problem with this trade with the trade negotiations is enforcement. I mean they they got to a point apparently where it was ninety percent acceptable and then. The remainder was enforcement, and that's when the Chinese basically decided to rewrite the whole thing. Um, you know, they've walked out on every deal they've ever made. I mean, they've cheated on everything from the WTO to to Hong Kong itself to the handover, one country, two systems. So I think we just have to get used to the fact that um, it's not worth much. And we have to educate our businesses that um, there's good business and bad business and, and – uh, um, uh, turning that over and turning your IP over is is bad business. So uh, hopefully we we move in that direction. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. Uh, you can learn more. Uh, Google China's vision of victory uh, by Jonathan Ward, and uh, we wish you a really good day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Steve.